keep this started. This is Gloria Spigia. It is currently 12, about 12.14 p.m. Uh, today is Monday, October the 15th, 2012, and I am interviewing uh, Donato Rodriguez. The third. The third, and uh, at his home for the Emma S. Barrientos Mexican-American Cultural Center All History Project. Donato, do you give permission for me to record this interview on behalf of the Austin History Center for this project? Yes, I do. Okay, great. Um, first of all, I'm going to start off by having you say your full name and then also, if you will, for transcription purposes, if you can uh, also spell it out. Surely. Donato Rodriguez III, D-O-N-A-T-O-R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. Okay. Now, um, when and where were you born? I was born in Del Rio, Texas in 1953, and I came to Austin in 1972 to attend the University of Texas. Ah, okay. Um, now, when you moved to Austin, uh, what part of the city did you live in, and um, uh, what was, is there anything special about the area that made you decide to move there? Okay. Um, when I moved to Austin, my parents had just recently relocated to Austin from Del Rio. So therefore, instead of my having my own apartment in college, I stayed with my parents in Northeast Austin. Ah, okay. All right. Um, now... Tell me a little bit about your family, your parents, your siblings. Okay. Um, I come from a small nuclear family. You had one brother and one sister, and my parents, of course. I was very lucky in the respect that both my parents had co were college educated. You know, um, Education was always stretched in my, uh, stressed in my family. My grandmother, Irene Cardwell, you know, she got her master's degree from Sol in 1946. And she always stressed that education and helping your fellow man were two most important things in life you know besides God and family but I was very lucky you know I, I realized that I come from a very unique you know background my parents were educated um, and they always stressed on me you need to work for the community and go to school which I did uh, and your brother and sisters do they live in unfortunately my brother passed away five years ago oh, at the age of 49 and my sister, she's a school teacher. She's been teaching in East Austin for the last 34, 35 years. Oh. And she's getting ready to retire. And this is my nuclear family. My mother lives six houses down the street. And my sister lives across the street. So we're, you know, we're yeah. traditional, you know, familia. Close, close yeah. by. Close. Mm -hmm. Yes. Tell me a little bit about your mother. My mother, uh, Teresita Cardinal. Um... First of all, I have to say that both my parents were 18 when I was born. You know, they were they were high school sweethearts and they got married. My mom has been an educator all her life. Uh, she started out in the classroom in Del Rio, Texas. She transferred to Austin in 1971 to take a position with Southwestern Labs, both her and my dad. What they did is they would travel throughout the United States implementing, evaluating and implementing bilingual programs. Mm -hmm. My mom left that and she became a uh, the bilingual coordinator for the city of Austin, AISD. And then after that, she became a principal, an assistant principal at a school. And unfortunately, uh, one day at school, she fell down 
uh, and injured her back, so she had to take, uh, she retired on disability. And she's always been very active. I always see her at all the events, uh, raising money for politicians. Right now she has an Obama yard sign. You know, she'll, she'll never get out of the politics, just like my grandmother. Yeah. Well, I know I've read some articles about her. Mm-hmm. She's won numerous awards and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that education was a, she had played a very important role in education here in Austin mm-hmm. with the Austin AISD. Yes, so she did. that's why I wanted uh, those that, that uh, listened to this interview, I wanted them to have a little background sure. on her. I'd like to say something about my dad also. Uh-huh. My dad sure. was very instrumental in civil rights back in the 60s and 70s. In Del Rio, he was the CAP director, the Community Action Program Director. And that's what was instituted by President Johnston with the War on Poverty. Mm-hmm. And uh, after he was a cap director, he moved to Austin uh, and worked with Southwest Labs. And after that, he was recruited by the Texas Education Agency to work in the desegregation program. Uh, it was a Judge Justice's decision back then, you know, to integrate mm-hmm. the school systems. And my dad worked for TEA for you know twenty plus years. And when he retired. Um, he was the uh, the state department head of uh, of civil rights of desegregation, uh, and so I'm quite proud of my parents. Yeah, yeah, you should be, you Thank should you. be for that. Um, when did you? At what time period? Well, I tell you what. Let's before I do that. Okay. Let me, now I want to know a little bit about you. Now you said you attended UT. Yes, did I did. And did you, uh, what were you studying at the time? I was studying government and with an English major, a uh, minor rather. Um, well, yeah, that's what I studied, government and English. The aspirations of going to law school, but that never materialized. Yeah, same here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just a dream. But, uh, hey, I went and became a librarian, so that guess that really just, you know, mm-hmm. just as good. Under pre-law, I was pre-library there science. What type of careers have you had as far as jobs concerned? Um, I have, well, my first job out of um, college, my first professional job, I worked for Juarez Lincoln Institution back in 1976, 77, 78. After that, I started working for, I worked for the state government uh, with the human resources for five years. I worked with the Travis County uh, Human Services Agency for one year. And I started working for the city of Austin in 1982, and I retired two years ago. And I've been in uh, uh, personnel, but however, the last 15 years I worked for the uh, the civil rights division for the city of Austin, and we would handle Title VII and Title VIII complaints mm-hmm. here in Austin. Okay. So that's basically what I've done. I've worked in the public sector all my life. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about when you work with what is Lincoln University, because that again, uh, at that point, were they already uh, on First Street or where? No, when was... I first started for what is Lincoln, we were housed in the, uh, the main building at St. Edwards St. University. Okay. They eventually acquired the building. Uh, it was an old Methodist church at the mm-hmm. corner of... Well, back then it was First Street. Now it's Cesar Chavez and uh, IH 35. And I remember, you know, it was a great time when they acquired the building. I remember going there. We helped paint, fix it up, and we all moved in. You know, take in mind, at that time I was 21, 22 years old. So it was very exciting for me. You know, it was right in the middle of the 
the Chicano movement, yeah. uh, and being exposed to all these, uh, shall we say, Hispanic academians. You know, to this day, Dr. Mesa, Dr. I mean, Dr. Mestas, Dr. Hershey. Uh, it was an exciting time. Yeah. Exciting time. Yeah. Can you give us a a a, um, a description of the building as to how it looked like on the inside? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that if, if you were to paint a picture and uh, Rowan talks about the auditorium as mm -hmm. what really stands out for him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and some of these other individuals, you know, was there anything in particular that stood out about that building? Well, I don't, I don't know if this is stand out by your definition, but I would always, there was a, uh, there used to be an old church and on the second floor there was a, a baptismal uh or confirmation, I don't know, it was like a swimming pool on the second floor, just a little room made to be filled with water. That always kind of scared me, you know, it really did. I'd go in there, boy, this is spooky. And you have to understand, back then, right when they were building, you know, refurbishing the building, everything was dark, they had to put in lights. Um, so, yeah, but to, but to answer your question, the most interesting was the baptismal area. That, that kind of scared me. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, um, like I said, sometimes something like that, mm -hmm. those individuals, because, you know, it's since it's been demolished, uh, it was demolished back in, what, 83? Mm -hmm. um, people have no idea that it even was there. Um, and so it's just to give, uh, again, those individuals, you see the outside of the building. You always see the outside of the building. But I've yet to see anything on the inside, any yeah. photographs or any video or anything of the inside well, of the building. Let me try to describe it. You know, I believe it was three stories. Um, remember, it was an old church, so there were large rooms. There was one large room that had an auditorium, but I think some, you know, Rouen, you know, described. It was a large auditorium, and there were a lot of offices, and we all had cubicles. The only people that had their own offices were like Dr. Mestas and Dr. Hershey. Um, and a couple of other people, but for the most part, it was just big rooms, big rooms. That's what I remember. Yeah. A lot of windows. Yeah. 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 And, and as a matter of fact, too, um, Juan Pablo, when he came back in uh, May, I think it was May, he had one of the windows oh, that he had salvaged. And I think they were raffling and giving it, you know, as a prize. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I wish I would have gotten that, but I didn't because mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's anybody that has any pieces of the brick or anything like that, you know. No, I, I remember uh, when it was being demolished and we were all standing around looking at it. Everybody was getting pieces of bricks to take as mementos. Yeah, yeah. For the Trailblazers, uh, Gilbert Rivera mm -hmm, Gilbert. Um, gave uh, Lomi a few of the pieces of the bricks that he had collected. Okay. So I put it on exhibit uh, along with the other materials that I had. That's great. So, and then somebody was like, wow, I had this great big old brick. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But regardless. Yeah. Um, Bittersweet memories. Really, really. So now you, uh, what were some of the uh, organizations that you were involved with back in your early days in the 70s and mm -hmm. 80s what I remember I was I was I'm proud to say I was a card carrying member of the Raza Unida party um, that was back in the 70s when I was in college mm -hmm. other organizations the uh, 
you mentioned Juan Pablo. Juan Pablo and I, back in the 70s at the University of Texas, we started the uh, Chicano Nights at the Student Union. So it was the, I, I never belonged to Mecha. You know, I didn't belong formally like that. We was, I can't really remember. Nonetheless, um, one of the first groups I really got involved with actively was with the League of United Chicano Artists. That was Lucha, and that was back in the 70s. That was with Juan Pablo Torres, Manuel Mena, uh, just a bunch of other people. And what we would do, we would do that. We would do teatro. Okay. What else stands out about Lucha? Again, now, that didn't, it, it, uh, it ceased back in, what, in the 80s? Whew. Was it um, maybe mid-80s? It would have so? to be either late 70s or early 80s. I believe more in the late 70s. Late 70s? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the interesting thing there, and you talk about Juarez Lincoln, was at Museo del Barrio. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, and yeah. they were very instrumental in that, too. Um, but, which now brings me as to when did you become involved in the creation of the MAC? Well, I had always, you know, since the 70s, always been supportive of all the artistic ventures. And I do remember back in the 70s, the Brown Berets. I never was an active member of the Brown Berets, but I knew them all. Um, we would all get together and say, you know, what things do we need here? Besides, you know, economic equality, we need something for, for culture and arts. And I remember back at, ooh, right after college, there was an event held at Juarez Lincoln that was prior to my being employed there called the Floricanto. Mm-hmm. I think Marta Cotera was very instrumental in putting that on. And that brought together a lot of disciplines, artistic disciplines of Mexicanos. Mm-hmm. And that was wonderful. Yeah. And I remember one of the, the undercurrent theme was there, where can we do this all the time? You know, not just once in a while. So I have been a member, or rather, you know, to answer your question, back since the early, you know, mid-70s. However, as when I got directly involved with the MAC, Around 2000-2001, Raul Alvarez and a couple of community members, specifically Tomas Salas and Pio uh, Renteria, Sabino Renteria, came up to me and asked if I wanted to serve on the CIMACA board. And I asked them why, and they said, well, we want somebody to represent us. We don't believe we're being represented by the, by the current CIMACA board. And in retrospect, I look at it, I think everybody had the same goal in mind. We need a cultural center. But I believe that some people became very frustrated with the process because it wasn't being moved fast enough. And even though everybody had the same goals, some people got frustrated again. And that created a lot of dissension between people. Even though we were all there working for the same thing, we had different eye views as to how it should and when it should be done. Um, but like I said, the main thing here was the process. It was just very slow in coming. Served a lot of dissatisfaction in the community. So anyway, okay, I was on the CIMACA board. And that was in the year 2000, 2001. And at that point, there was Kathy, Rowan, Valerie, uh, some other people on the board. About a year and a half after I became on the CIMACA board, the city of Austin terminated the contract with, with the CIMACA board. They accused CIMACA of not providing the deliverables that were required of the initial contract between the city and uh, the CIMACA board. 
So the city went ahead and dissolved the, the contract, you know, running the Mexican Cultural Center site. They created their own board. You know, it's the uh, Mexican Cultural Center board, which exists to this date. And I'm proud to say that I was the only person that was uh, moved over from the CIMACA board to the MAC board. Um, at that time, I, I just have to say that the process for all this had already been there. You know, I wasn't instrumental going out there beating the bushes, saying, come out and, you know, introducing these measures before city council. It was already there. They just needed somebody to help them move the process along. And that's where I came in. Um, eventually, I became the, the chair board, um, and I was the, the board of the chair for groundbreaking and when the CIMACA was opened. I'm, I'm sorry, the MAC was opened. Yeah. Uh, now, but what was the length of time that you served from... from Actually, were... being on boards, I would say um, 2005. I left the board shortly thereafter, 2006. Uh, seven, six, seven, eight years. That's when I was an active board member. That's a pretty good time. When you were working and getting the MAC, the creation of the MAC, what was your vision of the MAC? What did mm. you foresee it to be? From the beginning, I, I saw an, uh, an institution that would provide a place for all Latinos to come and gather and present their arts to everybody else. Now, the Mexican American Cultural Center, that's the name of it, Mexican American. Back when this was first discussed, it was a smaller world. And now there's Latinos from everywhere. You know, there's, name, name a country that we do not have at least a thousand people here in Austin. And, and you know, I'm, I'm surprised. And it, it, was, it should have been a grand cultural gathering place for everybody. That's what I envisioned. However, it's under the city of Austin, under the autonomy of the city of Austin. And in a certain respect, at this point, Gloria, I don't think it's fully lived up to what everybody first envisioned. You know, it's still a cultural, it's a beautiful building. It's still a place where everybody can get together and present their art. But uh, in my opinion, there's still something missing. You know, I don't know if it's, I just want a total autonomy. I don't know. But there's... To answer your question, yes and no. It's filled some of it, but at the other hand, it has not fulfilled the promise. Oh, the vision, shall we say. Yeah. Um, what was... You Obviously, you did believe in that it was very important to have the cultural center and that appealed to you. But at the same time, when you go back and look at the bond election, the first one, with Carver and the Mexican American Cultural Center, Carver got but the MAC didn't. Then they had to go to a second bond. Um, did you think that we we're going to have problems along the way that all of this, that there's going to be, because not everything, you know, they're doing it in phases. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's, to me, it's, is it going to, according to what y'all thought at the time that it would take to be, have it totally built? I know that the main conception, the main belief was that it's not going to be easy back then or now. I can personally tell you that no, I'm, I'm not satisfied that we do not have all of it built. I'm, I'm glad that we have the first part built. But however the way things are going, the economy and everything, I cannot envision the second and third phase being built without 
some type of intervention without some type of new plan on the board because if it continues the way it is it's not going to get built um, I, I guess this is the time that I can say that I do believe that people on the board right now should look into a public-private venture with with private monies being channeled into the Mac to try to build second and third phase like for example the Hilton Hotel over there on 2nd Street by the Convention Center, that's built on city land. And it has a contract with the city of Austin that they will funnel some of the monies they make that they earn there into the Convention Center. And I'm here thinking, why can't the MAC do the same thing? There's a lot of property there. You know, I do believe that, there, I believe it's a little bit over six acres. I do believe that we could somehow or another get some type of hotel there, another Hilton something, and we could go into partnership with them, get some of that money to funnel into the MAC to build a second and third phase, and also to help with the operating costs. Something like that has to be done, because the way it is right now, you know, I, I really am of the opinion that it's not going to get built, you know, unless something drastic happens. Yeah, I see the outlines on the sides, mm -hmm. and it's like, you know... Uh, yeah, you sort of wonder. Um, what were some of the other individuals that were working at the time that you were on the MAC and uh, getting, that were involved? Who were some of those individuals? Do you remember? Wow, oh yes, I sure do. Um, wow, we go back to the beginning. Well, I guess you asked me since specifically on the board. Uh, Marta Cotera has always been very instrumental. Tomas Salas has been instrumental. Uh, Stephen Parks, you know, uh, Mr. Parks passed away about, you know, three or four years ago. He was killed in a tragic accident. Um, he was very instrumental in providing logistical expertise to the project. You know, we would have all these fundraisers at Fiesta Gardens, and he's the one that, you know, provide, helped us with the logistics of all of that. But, you know, there's so many people to name. I, yeah. I, I'm only scratching the surface. Yeah, that's the interesting thing because that's, you know, um, we've been dependent on a list of individuals, the, the primary list was going to be 40, and then the secondary. But there are some individuals that I know. We mentioned Stephen Parks, and he was not on either one mm -hmm. of the lists and hasn't been mentioned. So it's another thing, too, because uh, uh, this project, uh, what we're trying to do is to make sure that everybody, you know, that uh, deserves to be credited is credited. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, describe your feelings overall about your work on the Mac. What were your real emotions? I believe that my main function there, my main purpose, what I served there, was just to be able to get the people together and envision the, the whole project instead of quibbling about you know, the little cornerstone. Uh, I think that had people gotten together a lot sooner than that, I do believe that the MAC would have been built sooner than it was. But my function basically at that point, like I said, was just to keep it going. It was already in motion. You know, I'm not, it was just in motion. All I was in there just to help them grease the wheels and pass it along. That's what I did. Uh, what person or persons most influenced you your ideas while working towards the creation of the Mac? 
You're talking about an actual person that was working yeah, in the person, bank? Or? Yeah, yeah, somebody that you really saw was working very hard and, you know, uh, a mentor, whatever, that uh, that you felt, yeah, if that person can do it, then I know I can work as hard. You know, that's a real difficult question because there were so many personalities involved here. You know, I think of Marta Cotera. You know, I think of Tomas Salas. Um, I think of uh, Tapón, Rosalinas. Uh, Gilbert Rivera, Sabino Renteria, Paul Hernandez, you know, Juan Pablo Gutierrez. I mean, it can go on and on. I think it was just a collective thing of people that influenced me. I just saw everybody working for it, and I said, hey, this is a good idea, and it's time that we need to do it. It's, it's just so many people involved. Did uh, your mother or your sister or any of your other family members work towards uh, helping with the Mac project, were there any? You know, fortunately, all my friends and people that I know, my parents, my sister, they, they were very supportive. You know, we'd have a festival here. I said, we need some money for to buy some soft drinks. You know, here, here's $10, here's $20. But everybody that I know just worked to it. Mm -hmm. So, if, yeah, which is another thing, too, that I've been hearing is that, uh, you know, any time that there was something that was being done, fundraisers or whatever, to help, mm -hmm. um, they were there. La Pastorale, for instance, mm -hmm. I mean, people were there to support however they could, uh, which is another thing. I really think that there's a documentary in the making with what everybody is talking about, mm -hmm. um, because if there isn't, I mean, all of this information is a good wealth of information. Um, let me ask you another thing. Uh, if Was there a time uh, that you might have thought that maybe uh, being involved with the MAC was not a good idea. You were working for the city at the time, right? Yes, I was. And was there any stepping over that ethical line no, or anything? No, it's just uh, I was wearing different hats at the time. You know, I worked for the city of Austin. I was on the MAC board. And they never really caused a conflict with either or. Either or. But no, ten, there was never a time when it was a problem. What was the most joyful aspect of uh, your involvement in the MAC? I mean, I know you spoke at the opening. Yes, I did. Um, I guess the most wonderful, it, the way I understand the question, was when we cut the ribbon of the MAC. To me, that was a dream that had been finally fulfilled after many, many, many years. And I think it was real exceptional for me, Gloria, I mean, Maria, because I kept on thinking of all the people that helped in this, you know, and that weren't with us, you know, Roy Lozano, uh, just other people like that that weren't there. And I thought about him and says, wow, I was just so happy. I think my mouth still aches from the smiles back then. Yeah. Was, my face does. That was, that was the most exciting time for me. That was because uh, you introduced um, the uh, Mexican council and you would introduce somebody else too uh, mm. at the uh, at the event at, but uh, uh, while did in all of what you have done uh, was there anything that maybe there might have been one crisis in creating the Mac that you particularly remember and how was it overcome
and I know there were a number of them, but is there one particular crisis that uh, in getting the MAC build, possibly mm -hmm. funding or you know something? But one one comes to mind. Um, okay, the first phase was not fully completed at with the monies that were available. So the city council allowed three, four million dollars at a later time. I can't remember the dates. And I remember the time I found out about it, the, I found out that the city council, those monies were already there a couple of years after the, the building was built or going to be built. I found out like the day before city council that the, that the council members were going to vote to defer that money to a later date. And the rationale, if I remember correctly, was that phase one had already been completed. They were tagging that to be part of phase two, but it wasn't. They didn't have enough money to do the first phase, so we asked for more money. They gave us more to complete the first phase. But see, here we go. They don't know the history. So I said, we're going to defer the $5 million because that's phase two. So I went the next day with, oh, I think Marta Cotera went with me. Um, and we spoke to city council and said, hey, wait a minute, that money was earmarked to complete phase one. And we had to educate them. So, and that's where we built the black box, you know, with this latest oh, monies, yeah. okay, the latest edition. And that was to complete phase one. And that's what I remember because I was, I heard the day before the meeting, the council meeting. So we had to gather the troops overnight and we were lucky. They said, okay, they're gonna go ahead and release the money and they did not defer it to a later date. What would happen if, if they would have? They would just have delayed, delayed. the building, the, the completion of phase one. Mm, okay. Um, what, uh, you obviously, you did attend the ceremony. Mm -hmm. And what were your feelings about the event? I mean, uh, again, I go based on, I wasn't there. I go based mm -hmm. on the video. Mm -hmm. um, but what? I mean, you know, you said you the ribbon cutting, mm -hmm. but what was your overall emotion of the whole thing? Are we talking about the opening the of opening, the Mac? Uh -huh, the Mac. Oh, yeah, it was day. just I was so elated that day. You know, it it was great. You know, I, I don't I can't find the proper adjectives for it. It was just wonderful. It was great. I can go from A to Z. Amazing, beautiful. Uh, it just goes on and on. It was just an amazing internal peacefulness. And satisfaction that finally the Mac was built, part of the Mac nonetheless. You said you were at the groundbreaking, and that was in 2005, mm, the, six? Yeah, it was about 2000, 2005, I believe. Mm -hmm. Took a couple of years to build, about 2005. And that was another thing, too, because you had already been working towards that, and there had been that time that nothing happened. Mm -hmm. The old buildings had been demolished. Mm -hmm. yes. And then there was that period that, that, you know, they were supposed to have started, but they didn't. And so there was, was there ever thinking, oh no, maybe it's not going to happen after the buildings that had been there? And We knew that money was already earmarked for the project. It was just a matter of when it would be released by the city council. And they didn't release until two, three years, four, five years after the bond election. Um, but sure, you know, well, we knew the money was there. We just didn't know when it was going to be done. 
And at that time, Raul Alvarez was there. And we had full faith and trust in Raul because if it hadn't been for him, and of course, we would not have gotten the monies at that time. You know, we knew he was there and he tried all he could. And we finally did get the money released. But sure, it's frustrating to know a project that has been waiting 30 years in the making. But we were closer to the end than we had ever been. So we may have been a little perturbed about it, but we knew it was coming. So just be patient a little bit longer. Yeah. What is, now let's fast forward all the way to last week. Okay. Uh, with what is was going on as far as the possibility of the garage, of the garage being built in front of the MAC, uh, of other things that have been taking place there on Rainy Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is what are your feelings about that? Okay, are you asking about the the city council tentative move? Right. Uh huh. Uh, I do believe that uh, I understand the decision was four to three to not sell that piece to the private developer, and I think that was good. I do believe that, well, I'll have to go back a little bit. I remember the Rainy Street District, that's the last area that has to be built to be developed downtown. And back in when the MAC was being built, we discussed with the Parks and Rec people about how we were going to have the vision clear to IH35, you know, how to see the building. So they had assured us at that time that they were going to designate the front of the MAC as a historical area where they were going to move the to-be-demolished homes in the Rainy Street to that little to that little parcel in front of the MAC so as not to obscure the view of it from IH-35. However, those people are already gone, you know, the ones that had discussed that to us. But I am glad that the city council moved to not sell the parcel. You know, and it's going to be a continuing struggle. I'm sure other things are going to be coming up later. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things, one of the individuals, and I think it was Valerie Menard, when she talked about when it's the MAC is completely done, mm-hmm. she said that you should be able to see the last two parts of it from IH-35, uh, and people will see it and will know that it's there. Because right now, I know when I'm on driving on the frontage road of I-35, getting ready to turn onto Holly, mm-hmm. um, that sign, just a small little sign, that's American Cultural Center, and you can pass it, you know. So, but uh, I, as she was describing what it would look like, I thought, wow, you know, that would be, and for the architectural design of it, mm-hmm. fantastic. I mean, there's no other compared to it. That's true. So that is the one thing. It's like, uh, you know, if something was to be in its way where they wouldn't be able to see it, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is one of the things, too, that uh, uh, it's funny how things happen That's at true. times, you know, uh, because this project that we're working on to get these oral history interviews and uh, a day or before one calls me and says, may I be allowed to say something because this is what's going on in regards to the, uh, the developing of a possible garage in front of the MAC, uh, parking garage. So um, it's... Uh, you know, but can I say something about that, sure. about the parking mm-hmm. lot? Mm-hmm. 
I would be willing to trade that section for a parking lot for a private developer if they would build us phase two and phase three. Sure, give us the building, you can take it. Sure. I don't think that's going to happen, but I would yeah. gladly surrender that little spot if they were to build the other two spots, the other two phases. Sure. That would. Hide us from I-35, that's fine. Just give us the two other phases, we're fine. And I think we're, we're, we'll be strong enough to stand on our own. Nobody has to see the building visually. They know who we're going to be. Hadn't thought of that one. Hadn't thought of that. Um, is there anything, we're about getting ready to close here, but is there anything that we should, uh, you think you should add to this interview that, you know, uh, you would want uh, the individual, the future researcher uh, to know? I'd like to say that one of the things that will never come up is, you know, as many people as you interview, there were so many people involved in this process. I think it would be impossible to get everybody's perspective of what's going on. Um, no, I, I just really can't add anything at this time. I'm sorry, Maria. Okay, no, um, no problem. I, um, just, uh, I'm very glad that you were able to take the time to meet with me and to at least, you know, um, talk about some of these, as I've always equated it, putting this puzzle together. Because this is what this it, it, what it is. It's a puzzle. And everybody's opinion is very important in all what was going on. And as you said, there were so many people so, many. so involved in so many different things going on that... Um, Yes, it's not going to be possible for everyone to be able to hear all those individuals and to get to actually know the story. But the story continues. It does. It continues, and um, which is another thing also. It'd be very interesting to see what future generations, uh, what they're going to make of the MAC. Um, I always sort of wonder, and, and I, uh, uh, Mike Martinez has been interviewed, uh, and we've, uh, or I will be interviewing Laura Esparza, mm -hmm. um, but there's lots of questions there too that I have in regards to um, the city being involved and um, the direction that it will take. And then also to have the other cultural centers, as Dr. Ibarra Frasto, you know, talked about, um, because the cultural center is indeed a guardian of a community's culture. That's where everything takes place. That's where las familias, you know, they all gather. And um, you don't see that very much anymore. Not here, if you go to ACL or South by Southwest or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, you're gonna be afraid of losing your kids and <laughs> everything else, mm -hmm. your parents or whatever. So that is the one <clears throat> thing. But I really appreciate you taking the time, meeting with me and doing this interview. And um, as I said, uh, at the end, we hope to get the transcriptions uh, done. They will be put on online. And then also um, the Mexican-American Cultural Center will, or the Emma Barrientos Mexican-American Cultural Center will also get copies of all of this. So thank you very much. Well, thank you.